Good morning again. Our scripture reading for this morning, our sermon text for this morning, comes from Matthew 9, verse 36 through 10, 15. If you could turn with me uh, in your Bibles to that passage. If you don't have a Bible, there uh, should be a number of them on the back table. You should feel free to take one of those. And if you don't own a Bible, you should feel free to keep that Bible, write your name in it, and then bring it back week after week as we study God's Word together. As, uh, as we come to God's word, let's pray together. Please pray with me. Our Father, we, we thank you for the gift of your Son, that we, can, that we can look to him, that we can turn our eyes to him, uh, and that uh, the, the troubles that we go through become dim as we look to our Savior. We pray, Father, that as we look now into your word, that we would see him in all of his glory uh, for who he is as our Lord, as our King, as our Savior, as, the, as our Good Shepherd. We pray, Father, that, that the, the things of this world would become clear, clearer in light of who he is, um, that we would be able to live more fully for you in the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew chapter 9, beginning with verse 36. When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And he called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the twelve apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon, the Cananean, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold, nor silver, nor copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor a staff, For the laborer deserves his food. In whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Well, harassed and helpless. That's Matthew's description of the crowds. And we're told, again, in verse 36, that when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless. And I wonder if this is what you see when you 
look around yourself and, and see the crowds? Do you see people who are harassed and helpless? You know, we see people who are going to work, who are taking exams or teaching classes, who are pumping gas and raising their kids, shoveling their driveways. Some look happy. Sometimes they're sad. Uh, They've got nice things often in our society, nice families, nice cars, nice jobs, nice houses, nice clothes. Uh, They're watching good movies and reading good books and listening to good music and eating good food. But this is what Jesus sees when he looks at those same people. He sees people who are harassed and helpless. That's what he sees when he looks at us. We're harassed, troubled. We really are troubled by so many things. In one sense, we're harassed by God's law, right? Legitimate, God-given expectations that we so often fail to fulfill. They bring guilt and it brings fear. We're harassed by the absence of God, right? Our alienation to our Father caused by sin. Uh, The relationship that we were created for has been broken, and that troubles us. We're harassed by our flesh with its myriad desires that burn hot in our soul and won't let up. The twisted thoughts that we try to hide even from ourselves. We're harassed by our bodies, right? Which suffer much trouble through sickness and disease and aches and pains and ultimately death. We're harassed by Satan. We're harassed by Satan's temptations, right? Uh, Pleasures that he puts forward which never really satisfy. Or addictions which are always demanding more. That may be as various as, as drug addiction or a cleaning obsession. We're harassed by Satan's accusations. Uh, the feeling that we can never fit in, that no one could ever love us, love us if they really knew what was going on in our hearts. Least of all God. We're so much worse than others, we think, so much worse than people know. We daily face these discouraging, satanic, vicious criticisms, right, of ourselves, uh, that, that we give ourselves, that others give to us, or that we even project those on God. We're harassed by Satan's lies. Uh, that that lead us into unrealistic expectations of life or harmful, misleading beliefs or self-destructive practices. We chase after false comforts because of his lies, lies, the comforts of routine and control and money and relational connections. We, we temporarily uh, calm our fears with these things. They're, they're like numbing agents, right, of, of worldly enjoyments that they may be good in themselves, right, but, but they're destructive when looked to as an escape from reality. We're harassed by out-and-out oppression, right? I mean, the wrath of others, the sins of those closest to us, persecution, injustice, insults, violence. Add to all of this the confusion, right? Not knowing uh, where to turn for relief, not knowing what life is really about, not knowing who to trust or what to do about it all. And Jesus' description becomes very, or or Matthew's description of the crowds, becomes very uh, accurate, right? We're harassed. And what's worse, we're helpless. There's nothing we can do about it. In vain, we often fight for control, but it leads nowhere. Well, that that was a long list of of things that harass us. What resonates with you as you hear that list, as you think about those different things? Is it the weight of sin's guilt or a sense of sin's shame, Uh, the presence of sin's enslaving power, Uh, the the, uh, ubiquity of sin's curse and corruption? What do you feel most 
prevalently? What, what, what weighs on your heart? Well, just as the beauty of the stars is seen when the sun has set and the sky is darkest, the beauty of the gospel is seen when our situation is seen for what it is, dark and, and bleak, harassed and helpless, Matthew says. And it's in this context that the church's mission is born. We're going to look at four things this morning. You can see it in your bulletin. Uh, We're going to look at the power behind the church's mission, the people of the church's mission, the proclamation in the church's mission, and the pattern of the church's mission. Uh, You get the point that this passage is about the church's mission. And first, we're going to look at the power behind that. The power behind that. Jesus sees the crowds, they're harassed and helpless, and he is moved. He has compassion on them. And the idea is that Jesus is is moved, right? He's moved in his gut. He's moved, we would say, in his heart for the crowds. The English word compassion is a great word. The, The word compassion means to suffer with. That's what the word compassion means, to suffer with. And what a great word to describe Jesus and his response to humanity. Jesus came to suffer with us, to take our suffering upon himself. We see that here in his compassion for the crowds. Ultimately, of course, we'll see that in the cross where Jesus dies for sin. He bears the curse, the punishment of God in our place. He takes our suffering. Jesus' compassion is is what I'm calling the power behind the church's mission because apart from Jesus' compassion, For the harassed and helpless people, apart from his willingness to come and suffer with us, really, there there is no mission. The church has no role apart from Jesus' compassion for the lost. And it's out of this compassion that Jesus speaks to his disciples in verses 37 and 38. And here's what he says. He said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. See, Jesus is saying that there are people who are ripe for the kingdom. They know that this world is a mess. They long for something better. But there's no one to to walk them into the kingdom. No no, no, uh, harvester to bring them in. And so Jesus, because of his compassion for people, because of his suffering with them, he tells his disciples to pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers. Jesus wants to see people come into his kingdom. And what's his plan for doing that? It's really simple. There are two parts that he says. He says, you know, we are to pray and then God is to send, right? Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So the first question as we start thinking about this passage is, are you praying? Right? Are you praying? You know, we sit on a campus of a school with 40,000 plus students, uh, the vast majority of whom don't know Jesus. Uh, they, they don't know forgiveness. They don't know his grace. They don't know hope and, and peace uh, that, that Christ gives. They don't know the, the true joy of the gospel. They don't know the real love of the Father. They are ultimately, according to the scriptures, harassed and helpless and condemned, headed to destruction apart from Jesus. And so are we praying? Are we praying that the Lord of the harvest would raise up laborers? Pray earnestly, Jesus says, earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. 
Let the compassion of Jesus for you and the compassion of Jesus for the lost and dying world drive you to prayer. Of course, you should be careful how you pray. Because no sooner does Jesus instruct his disciples to pray that God would send out laborers than he appoints them to go out as laborers. So that brings us to the second point, that the people of the church's mission, right? Look at uh, chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. And, and Jesus called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. And the names of the 12 apostles are these. And then he names them. Now, I think what's the most important thing to notice about these men is that they are largely unimpressive. Peter stands out because he's always putting his foot in his mouth. Then there's Andrew, his brother, who is totally overshadowed by his brother Peter. Then there's James and John, who, if you read through the Gospels, at one point are power-hungry and spiteful at times. James is killed early on, but we don't know much more about him other than that. Uh, Philip doesn't trust God to provide for our daily bread at one point in the Gospels. Bartholomew's name is found four times in the Gospels. Uh, Each time... In, in the lists of the 12, um, actually, I think it's three times in the Gospels, each time in a list of the 12, he's possibly called Nathaniel in the Gospel of John. And if so, the only thing we really know about Nathaniel is that at times he's prejudiced and condescending. Thomas is only found in the lists in the first three Gospels and in Acts, uh, but then he shines in the Gospel according to John. He's rash and confused and doubting. That's what we know about Thomas. Then there's Matthew, who's a tax collector, who consorted with known sinners. He's known for his parties that are full of food and drink. Then you have James, uh, the son of Alphaeus, who was possibly Matthew's brother. Matthew also is called a son of Alphaeus. And other than possibly being the brother of a known sinner, we know nothing about him. Thaddeus has it even worse than Bartholomew, because he's mentioned only two times in the New Testament, Possibly because his other name, the other name that he's known by, is Judas, not Iscariot, which is not the name that you want to have. And if so, if that's who he is, the only thing that we know about him is that he's confused by Jesus in John 14, but at least he's asking good questions. Simon the Canaanian is also known as Simon the Zealot, which means he was likely a violent political uh, radical. And then, of course, there's Judas Iscariot. And so what is most noteworthy about these men is how ordinary they are. They are regular, messed up people that as a whole are unimpressive. Most of these men, all we have is their names. In one sense, they left no personal mark on history. The other thing to note as we look at these names is, is the variety in these men, right? There's political variety, right? Simon the Zealot would have been a violent opposer of Rome, and Matthew the tax collector worked for them. Uh, there would have been educational variety, moral variety, geographic variety, where they're from, a vocational variety, right? So we have this unimpressive collection of seemingly random messed up people, They have little to commend them, little to hold them together, but these are the men that Jesus appointed to begin his mission to the world. They are a picture 
of the church, a microcosm of what of who we are. The church universal is made up of un, an unexceptional variety of people. That's not meant to be demeaning. It's actually meant to be encouraging because, you know, do you ever feel like you can't, you know, you, you can't do this whole mission thing, this whole evangelism thing. Um, you can't explain what you believe. I mean, who are you, right? You're, you're nobody special. I mean, you have no gift of evangelism. You're not Billy Graham. Uh, you, you're, not, you're no great apologist, right? Uh, you're, you have no exceptional oratory skill. Uh, you're just a normal person, a normal student, well, you're just the kind of person that Jesus wants to use. And you're just the kind of person that Jesus uses right here in the Gospels. Jesus is not looking for exceptional people. But the original 12 had, again, little to commend them, except that Jesus gave them his authority to go out and speak. It's actually in recognizing our weakness and our frailty and our inability that Jesus does his work through us. Because God's power, Paul tells us elsewhere, God's power is made perfect in our weakness. So the, one of the reasons I think that we see, we see God work so little is because we don't want to admit how weak we are. We want to be strong, right? We think we need to have some exceptional skill in order for God to work through us. We need the right knowledge or the right words or, or the right persuasive personality, but God's work is not done in our strength. God can use our strength, and sometimes he does use our strengths. But often our strengths get in the way because when we rely on our strengths, we move out in pride and self-reliance, not humility and dependence. And so the number one thing that, that we need to have for Jesus to use us is simply a, a willing, humble, dependent attitude. Sometimes these guys didn't even have that. As you read through the Gospels, the question is, right, am I willing? Am I willing to submit to Jesus' call on my life? Am I willing to take up Jesus' mission in the world? And yet before we answer that question too, too quickly, we need to be honest about the cost. What stops us from following Jesus in his mission? It's often all of the other loves of our hearts, isn't it? I mean, if I'm honest... There are so many other things that I love besides Jesus and besides Jesus' mission, besides the harassed and helpless of the world. I mean, my, my mind and my heart are set on so many other things besides the harvest. I love uh, comfort and I love my family and I love uh, music and movies and books. I love having uh, building a reputation or the idea of being a, a part of a church that reaches the lost more than I love the lost. My heart is so deceitful, right? It's so full of desires that threaten to crowd out any desire for the kingdom. Which is really what this is about, isn't it? It's about the kingdom. It's about seeing Jesus' kingdom extend, seeing people come into the kingdom, enter into the kingdom, receive the kingdom. So the power behind Jesus, uh, behind the church's mission is Jesus' compassion, right? That's where it all starts. Jesus has compassion on the harassed and helpless of the world like you and me. And then the people of the church's mission are these unimpressive disciples, right? This, this ragtag group of men that Jesus calls out and appoints to go. 
But then we have the, the proclamation in the church's kingdom, or in the church's mission, right? The message of the kingdom. And Jesus, in, in uh, verses 7 and 8, he's telling people to go. And then in verse 7, he says, <clears throat> Proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. And I want to notice that the essence of, of the ministry of the disciples is proclamation. That's what Jesus sends them out to do, first and foremost. We'll get to the other stuff in a minute. But first he says, go proclaim. Proclaim as you go, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. They're given a message to announce. Matthew 4.23 calls this message the, the good news of the kingdom. That's what they're to go proclaim. That's what they're to go announce. Which brings us the question, right, what is the kingdom? What is the kingdom? What, the good news of the kingdom. They're announcing that the kingdom is at hand. What does that mean? Well, kingdom, a kingdom is about rule or authority, right? Kingdoms are about kings and the authority that kings have. But given all that we've seen in Matthew so far, uh, here's, here's my definition of the kingdom. Here's how I would define it. Um, the kingdom of heaven is the renewal of all things under the grace purposed authority of Jesus. It's the renewal of all under the authority of Jesus, authority which Jesus uses for the purpose of showing grace. And so we'll break that down, right? The kingdom of heaven is the renewal of all things. In the beginning, God created the world good. He created an order and a structure and a beauty to the world. Uh, the world that God made gave life to humanity. All of our needs were provided for in the garden. We had no worries, nothing to fear. And we were created to rule the world under God, right? To uphold this structure, to uphold his authority in the world. And this is a world that flourished, right? Humanity and the animals and the very ground itself all lived in harmony with one another. The world functioned under the rule and authority and structure that God had set up. And the world was good, but with the coming of sin into the world, we've made a mess out of things. And the ground brings forth thorns instead of fruit, right? And the animals run scared and society has broken down and is always on the verge of coming apart at the seams. Human relationships are fraught with things like envy and anger and jealousy and abuse and rivalry and oppression and violence and hurt and mean-spiritedness. Right? All because our relationship with God has been broken, we were once his children, but we've become his enemies. And by rejecting his rule in the world, right, we're trying to establish our own. We've established our own little rival kingdoms where we're all these little warring governments trying to get our way in the world. This world has become a battleground, right, between our desires and God's goodwill. And rather than peace and harmony and beauty, we find strife and discord and the ugliness of the dark underbelly of the world in which we live. The kingdom of heaven is the renewal of all these things. I mean, imagine a world, right, with, with no arguments with your spouse, no battles with your children, no embarrassment, no unfulfilled expectations, no pain, no sadness, no disappointments, no tears. That's the kingdom of heaven. That's what Jesus was announcing, the renewal of all things. And yet the kingdom is the renewal of all things under the authority of Jesus, Jesus is the king, right? He's the king that God sent into the world, the king of Israel, as Matthew 1 shows us. He's the king of heaven and earth because he's both the son of David and the son of God. Of course, the problem is 
when a king comes into a world that has rebelled against him, we're liable to judgment, right? But we're liable to judgment for cosmic treason, for rebelling against the God of the universe, rebelling against the king of heaven and earth. And so in one sense, the coming of a king can bring pure terror. We were charged with taking care of God's world, but we rebelled against God, setting up our own kingdoms. And so the coming of the king could mean the coming of our destruction as his rivals. And yet Jesus did not come to judge the world, but to save it. Jesus came to renew the world, to restore it. He comes to use his authority, not to judge, not yet, but to show mercy. And so Jesus does come to conquer his enemies in one sense, but he does that in the cross. By doing away with sin and with guilt, by dying in our place, Jesus takes our punishment for sin. And this is the necessary first part of the renewal. Because rather than God throwing us all into hell for cosmic treason, he can now grant us a royal pardon for our sin. And he can welcome us into his restored kingdom as friends rather than judging us as enemies. So the Son of Man, we're told in Matthew, has authority to forgive sins. That's the authority that Jesus came to exercise. The authority, first and foremost, to forgive sins. By dying for sin, Jesus also won the right to, to, to put the world, which was broken by sin, to put the world back together. To pour out the Spirit, the agent of world renewal. The Spirit has come to renew our hearts now and will come at Jesus' return to renew all of creation, the whole physical order. And so we long for and anticipate a renewal of all things as the culmination of the coming of God's kingdom. That's the coming of the kingdom. It's the renewal of all, beginning with us, beginning with our hearts, beginning with the forgiveness of sins, but ending in the transformation of everything and the doing away of all corruption, sickness, disease, and death. So the kingdom of heaven is the renewal of all things under the, the grace-purposed authority of Jesus, right? The authority of Jesus, which he uses to show grace. Of course, this is what makes sense out of the rest of Jesus' instructions, Jesus in verse 8 talks about healing the sick and raising the dead and cleansing the lepers and casting out demons. And, and these things are signs, signs of the renewal of everything. They're, they're foretastes of the fullness of the kingdom. Jesus wanted his disciples to proclaim the kingdom and provide a foretaste of what the kingdom will be. And Jesus calls us to do the same. He calls us to proclaim the kingdom. Surely that's going to look different for each one of us, right? Right? I mean, in one sense, it's my job, after all. And you all have other vocations. You have vocations as students and teachers and lawyers and engineers and husbands and wives and fathers and mothers. And God calls you to be faithful in your vocations. If you spent your days on the street corner proclaiming the kingdom, right, you couldn't fulfill your many other God-given callings. And yet we're all called to bear witness to his grace within our particular circumstances. We're all called both to, to speak of it and to embody it right where we are. And so Peter says in, in uh, 1 Peter, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. He says we're all to be ready to make a defense for what we believe. Paul says in Colossians, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, 
so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. And again, Paul says, be ready. Let your speech be seasoned with salt. Let it be gracious, uh, full of the words of grace of, of the gospel. Again, Paul says at one point that he tries to please everyone in everything that he does, not seeking his own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. And then he says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. He says we're to do the same thing, to seek the advantage of many that they may be saved. And so even as we are called to be faithful in our, in our callings, in our vocations, in our jobs, we are also called to proclaim the good news of the coming renewal of all things through Jesus. We're to proclaim and embody it. And we're not likely to heal the sick or raise the dead, but we do provide a foretaste by our love for others which bears witness to Jesus' love in us. Now, lest we feel overwhelmed by all of this, by this calling in life to, to live out our careers, to, 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 to live in our callings, but to both proclaim and embody the kingdom in the midst of that, let's look at the last section, which talks about the pattern of the church's mission. Look at verses 515, 5 through 15. Uh, there are a lot of things here that are unique to the apostles. But there's a general pattern which applies to us as well, which is why Matthew tells us about it. And I'm really only going to just highlight three points, and, and I'll give them to you first. Uh, the first point is start where you are. The second point is trust God to provide. And the third is take people as they come. First, uh, Jesus tells the apostles not to go to the Gentiles, but only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And the question is, Why? Right? Why does Jesus do that? Clearly, it's not because the gospel is only for Jewish people. In Matthew 28, Jesus is going to instruct his disciples to go to all nations. And so the gospel is for all people. So why does Jesus send his 12 disciples only to the Jewish people? Why? Why does he do that? Well, there are two reasons. Uh, the first is a theological reason. Uh, the good news of the kingdom is a Jewish message. Uh, Jesus is the son of David, the king of Israel. So this message is uniquely suited for Israel to receive. If, uh, the, the, this message is good news for Gentiles only as they are brought into Israel. Right? When we believe in Jesus, we are actually grafted into God's people. His one nation beginning with Abraham. Now, a lot more could be said about that, of course, but in this sense, Jesus' command to his disciples here is really particular to these disciples, isn't it? It's not something that can be repeated. Uh, the gospel has gone to the Jew first, and now it has moved on to the Gentiles as well. Uh, that's the pattern we see throughout the New Testament. The, the gospel went out to the Jews, it went out uh, to them first, and then it went out to the Gentiles and to the ends of the earth. There's also a practical reason for Jesus' instruction here, and that is that Jesus' disciples can't go everywhere. I mean, there are only 12 of them, after all, and the logical place to start is right where they are. In this sense, the command is instructive for us. And we can ask this as, as individuals, right? Who are the people around me who need the message of the renewal of all things? And who are my neighbors, my coworkers, my fellow students, the, the people I see every day who need this message? I need to go to them. I need to share it with them. I need to love them and get to know them and speak to them about the grace that is offered in the gospel. 
We can ask this as a church as well. I mean, who are the people around us who need the message of the kingdom? How can we move out to share it with them as a community together? So the first practical point uh, from this section in 5 through 15 is just begin where you are, right? With your neighbors, with your workplace, with your classmates, right? That's where you start. The second practical point is, is Jesus has a number of instructions on what not to take, And they're very, actually, practical things that he says don't take. He says don't take money, don't take a bag, don't take extra clothes, even a walking stick. He says don't take any of these things. And uh, some of this may have to do with the urgency with which Jesus was sending them out at that period of time. In fact, later on in Luke 22, Jesus would tell his disciples to pack those very things, which is really important to note. Uh, he, he tells them in Luke 22 to be prepared even to protect themselves. He says, go buy a sword in Luke 22, right? So Jesus tells his disciples later on to be prepared. So this is not a universal command to move on to the mission field without financing, as some people take it to be, right? That's not what Jesus is saying here. Okay, so then what is it? What is he saying here? Well, if there's a general principle uh, for us... It's to trust God with our our, our ministry, to trust God to provide for us, to trust him to to equip us and to prepare us. In light of Luke 22, sometimes God provides for us through our planning, and that's great. He will do that. But whether through our planning or despite it, we trust God to provide for us as we pursue living out his mission in the world. So first practical point, begin where you are. The second is trust God to provide, right? He's the one who provides for us in the midst of life. And the third, third, uh, third thing we find is we have Jesus' words about finding a, a worthy house and staying there or else shaking the dust off your feet. And, and there's a lot that he says, and, and sometimes it's a little confusing. There are a number of points that we could draw out, but I'm only going to mention one. Jesus talks about finding a worthy house, which probably uh, means he's intending those who are willing to listen to your message, those who are willing to receive what you're saying. And then he talks about leaving those who will not receive them or listen to their message, right? And, And so there's this very practical point here that Jesus is teaching them about looking for those who are interested in the message and leaving those who refuse to listen, who put up walls until God has done a sufficient work in their hearts to open them up to his truth. Right? We're not to coerce or manipulate or otherwise cajole people into the kingdom. Uh, we speak, and if people brush us off, then we move on. That's okay, right? If they're not interested, we're, we're going to honor that and keep moving. If people receive us, that's wonderful. We unfold more of God's grace to them. Right? It's, it's the principle Jesus mentions elsewhere that whoever has, more will be given. To the one who's interested, right? you keep talking. This is great. We can talk all day long. To the one who puts up barriers, then okay, that's fine. All right, I can move on. This is so important because we often feel that people have to believe us, right? They have to listen or we need to get through our presentation, right? I need to say it all. But that just isn't the case. You know, if someone doesn't want to listen to you, move on to somebody else. This means that we must keep our eyes and ears open, right? We need to be looking for people who might be open to the message of the gospel, Uh, We test the waters, right? We strike up a conversation. We ask a few questions and we see where things lead. If people receive our words, we rejoice. And if people reject us, we move on. We pray for that person. You can keep loving that person, but you look for other opportunities to speak about the coming renewal of all things. 
There's no coercion necessary. Right? We should never seek to manipulate people into believing the good news of Jesus, renewing the world. That, just, that doesn't make sense. It's not the way it works. We persuade? Yes, we seek to persuade. Manipulate? Never. Right? And there's a difference. There's a huge difference. Well, the worldwide mission of the church began when these 12 very ordinary men were driven by the compassion of Jesus to take the powerful message of the coming renewal of all things to the people right around them. Uh, Their method was to imitate Jesus, right? Jesus, out of his compassion, came in weakness, even to the point of death, to renew the world, to establish his kingdom of grace, and he now offers that kingdom freely. Jesus left heaven, which in one sense is the longest missionary trip ever, uh, but, but then he ministered to his own, his people, right? Relatively close to his own hometown. Jesus never traveled very far. Jesus freely offered God's coming kingdom while trusting his father to care for his needs. He never forced someone to talk or coerced a conversion. He invited people to come and he let people walk away. You see that all the time in the gospels, people just walking away from Jesus and he lets them go. He doesn't say, no, wait, you don't get it. You didn't understand. No, he just lets them go. Once we have realized the amazing worth of the kingdom proclaimed by Jesus and and that all of these worldly endeavors that, that our heart chases after, they begin to lose their charm and we are freed from the ties of this world to follow Jesus in his mission to proclaim the kingdom in weakness, to offer it freely to all who will have it. And so let's pray that we, as ordinary people, will be moved by the compassion of Jesus to take the powerful message of the coming renewal of all things to the people right around us, to his glory and honor. Let's pray. Jesus, we just confess, I confess, I confess how, how, how little I love, how little I love you, how little I love your glory and your name. How little I love the lost. Jesus, I don't have your heart of compassion. And I pray that you would give us that kind of a heart. I pray that as we look at your compassion, it would generate compassion in us. That we would be a people who are motivated by your compassion to go out and to proclaim that your kingdom has come. And that your kingdom is coming and will come in its fullness on the last day. And we pray that as we do that, your spirit would go with us, that he would empower us, that he would enable us, that he would uh, work through us, and that he would work in people's hearts, that they would believe it. And that they would turn to Jesus and find the forgiveness of sins and the hope of the resurrection. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.